Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we're studying the teachings of the Buddha in this book titled Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, Volume 1. We're about six and a half months into our group learning program, which is a seven-month program. So we're coming to the end of this book, and we're in Chapter 24 this week. Chapter 24 is titled Misunderstandings of Gotama Buddha's Teachings. I realized that on the live stream, I actually don't have the accurate title there, but that was just an oversight of my part of not updating that before class. Today, we're going to be discussing misunderstandings of Gotama Buddha's teachings because the teachings of the Buddha came into the world 2,500 years ago when he started teaching as part of his last life. And he taught for 45 years. And during the lifetime where he lived, the teachings were shining in the world. They were very bright because there's an actual Buddha in existence that the people who were learning with him would have deeply understood the teachings of what it takes to get to enlightenment. And then after he died, they actually wrote things down because during his lifetime, it was an oral tradition. And then they started writing things down after his death. And for about 500 years after his death, the teachings continued to shine brightly in the world. But then they gradually started declining. Just as Gautama Buddha predicted, the teachings have gradually declined over 2,500 years. This is due to impermanence, that things have been constantly changing. And also, as people were learning with the Buddha, there was obviously a core group of people, countless people, who were actually enlightened. And enlightened beings are going to know what it takes to get to enlightenment and they're going to know the teachings inside and out backwards and forwards it's going to be very seamless for them to understand the teachings that lead to enlightenment but there's going to be lots of other people around a teacher once they die who aren't actually enlightened yet they're in the process of becoming enlightened and because of that there's still going to be some ego in the mind so there was fractures in the community where people started going out on their own, having craving to create their own thing, not realizing that a Buddha is the originator, the discoverer, the declarer of the path to enlightenment. And once you start changing a Buddha's teachings, this is very dangerous for that individual. And it's very dangerous for the world as well, because now there's these modifications and this dilution of the teachings that lead to enlightenment. So that's what's occurred over 2,500 years. And as we've gone through this group learning program, 
I've been sharing with you what it is that are the teachings that lead to enlightenment that I know with 100% certainty, this is what leads to enlightenment. And as you've learned those teachings, I haven't pointed out necessarily that people misunderstand this or people misunderstand that. I've just laid down, these are the teachings that lead to enlightenment. A common example of that is when I talk about discontentedness rather than suffering. You know, I just kind of explain what discontentedness is, explain to you that some people use the word suffering, and here's the reason why I use discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. And other things like this, like when I teach the four foundations of mindfulness, I just teach you what the four foundations of mindfulness is, rather than tell you all the other things that people are describing as the four foundations of mindfulness and how that maybe isn't the most accurate. So over the last six and a half months, I've shared with you what are the teachings of the Buddha. And part of that teaching, you've learned that there are no rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that the Buddha taught as part of getting to enlightenment because the primary problem that is keeping the mind in the unenlightened state is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. The unenlightened mind doesn't understand, for example, why it gets angry or why there's sadness or why there's frustration. The unenlightened mind lacks that wisdom. It doesn't have the clarity to understand. And typically we blame other people for being annoyed or irritated or frustrated. We blame other people. But this is because of the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. It's not until we cultivate wisdom that we then understand that it's craving, desire, attachment that's causing the discontentedness. And then we start to understand that it's breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity that trains that. We start to understand more of the problem of craving and we start to understand anger and that it's loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness that antidotes that and transforms the mind. And slowly but surely, as you learn these teachings, you come to understand more and more of what this path is to enlightenment. So therefore, you're more likely to actually experience it. Well, if you've learned with me over the last six and a half months or any amount of time other than that, you might actually decide at some point to go to a Buddhist temple or a meditation center, or you might decide to pick up a book from other authors, or you might have a a conversation with somebody at a smoothie shop about Buddhist teachings and the path to enlightenment. And it's very likely that the people you interact with, with the books that you pick up, with the meditation centers and Buddhist temples that you interact with, that what they're gonna share is very different perhaps than what I'm sharing. And this is attributed to most people in the world do not practice based on the words of the Buddha. So what you've learned over the course of this program is the teachings of the path to enlightenment based on the words of the Buddha from the original source text. The vast majority of the world doesn't study the Buddhist teachings based on the Pali Canon, the original source text. So there's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of delusion or lack of wisdom in the world about the path to enlightenment and what the Buddha actually taught. One of the things that I'm doing as part of the work that I've dedicated the rest of my life to is bringing these teachings back into the world and restoring them in a way that people can see very clearly what is the path to enlightenment. So while over the last six and a half months, I've shared with you what is the path to enlightenment, as you visit these meditation centers, Buddhist temples, you interact with people at a smoothie shop, or you pick up a book about Buddhism, when you see things that are different, you might question, you know, did David really teach me 
what Buddhism really is and what this path to enlightenment is because what he shared with me is in conflict with what I'm seeing here in other places. Well, you can understand that what I'm sharing is the words of the Buddha, but more importantly in this chapter, chapter 24, what I'm sharing with you is the misunderstandings, some of the very common misunderstandings. And there's misunderstandings above and beyond what I wrote in this chapter, but this chapter is dedicated to some of the most common misunderstandings that you're going to see in the world. And when I share this with you, I don't share it as I'm right and everyone else is wrong. I don't think in terms of right or wrong. I think in terms of what is it that's going to lead to enlightenment and helping you to independently verify that what I'm sharing is the truth using the words of the Buddha, but also using your own investigation, your own reflection and your own practice so that you can see the truth for yourself. And by me sharing the misunderstandings that you'll see in the world that people are misunderstanding Gautama Buddha's teachings, what this does for you by you independently verifying what I'm sharing is it further illuminates the path to enlightenment. What I'm looking to do with all these books and all these classes and retreats, and now I've got this Buddhist pilgrimage tour that we're going to be doing next year, all these different offerings that I'm making and offering for the community to participate in, what I'm doing is I'm illuminating this path to enlightenment. It's like laying down bright lights along the sides of the path so you can see very clearly what is the path so that then you're more likely to travel that path. Whereas if I don't lay down these bright lights and it's just a you know, dimly lit path, then it's not as clear to you what the mind needs to be trained to do and understand and practice in order to get to enlightenment. So this chapter for me is a way to help people that go into other centers or temples or pick up books or have conversations that you'll see these common things that I'm going to share with you that are misunderstandings. You'll be able to understand why they're misunderstandings and you'll understand that because of impermanence and a lack of wisdom and that the vast majority of the world does not study the words of the Buddha, this is the reason why you see what you see. See, the unenlightened mind is craving permanence. So when it hears the word Buddhism or Buddhist temple, the assumption is everybody must be practicing the same thing. If this person shaves their head and wears an orange robe, they must know the teachings of the Buddha, right? Well, that's actually not true. That essentially we don't have a centralized organization that has collected up the teachings and then disseminate them out through the world and that everybody learns and practices the same things. Instead, what you've got is you've got this large variety of temples and meditation centers and authors and teachers who are sharing various things that they might have learned through an oral tradition. And in an oral tradition, this oral tradition is easy to be changed. When things are written down and they're recorded on video and podcasts and things like this, someone can't change the words of your teacher, teacher David. Like someone can't say that David says that it's wholesome to go kill because it's been recorded in books and podcasts and videos that this is going to lead to unwholesome results for you. But in a tradition like what Gautama Buddha started, which was very helpful, having 
the teachings that he shared as an oral tradition and then having people recite those every two weeks during his life, that once he died, these teachings were very strong and vibrant for about 500 years. But then because they were primarily living as an oral tradition, even though things had been written down, not everybody was looking to those teachings that were written down. There were still a lot of people right after his lifetime, you know, during his lifetime and after his lifetime. But even today, 2,500 years later, there's still an enormous amount of people who are relying on the oral tradition. And because of this, the teachings can be modified and changed, not necessarily out of ill will or ill intentions or anything like that, but just because the lack of memory, the lack of clarity, the lack of understanding, these teachings have gradually changed, just like all the other teachings, whether it's Christianity or Muslim or Hindu teachings or any other tradition that's out there, these things are not exactly the same as they were during the lifetime of the original teachers. So when we recognize that, that things have changed, then what we do is we look to the original source teachings of the Buddha from the Pali Canon, and we don't believe the Pali Canon. We never believe anything. You don't even believe the things that I share, the books that I write, the classes that I teach. You don't believe anything that I say. Instead, you learn what I'm sharing, then you reflect on it to independently verify it, and then you practice it and see if it transforms the condition of your mind and if it's actually working to transform your mind. And if it is, and you see the discontentedness gradually diminishing, then you know you're learning the truth. But this isn't well understood in the world, so we've got an enormous amount of people in the world that are practicing all kinds of different things, and this chapter is going to be helpful for you in order to make it very clear of what it is that you learned in the last six and a half months, but also make it very clear that when you encounter people who might be misunderstanding, that you understand that it's a misunderstanding due to impermanence, due to not studying the words of the Buddha. And in that situation, we don't judge the other person. We don't look down on them. We don't think that they're a bad person. We don't think that they themselves have specifically with ill intention made the change. But instead, we just recognize because we've done the inner work to independently verify the teachings, we know what the truth is about the teachings because we see the transformation in our mind in this other person may not have done that work, unfortunately. And that's okay because that's their practice. So if we go into a Buddhist temple and we see them doing some of the things that I'm going to be sharing with you today, I don't look at them in a negative way. I don't judge them. I don't think they're unwholesome. I don't think they're bad people. They probably truly believe that what they're doing is Buddhism. But that's the challenge is they believe it. They haven't deeply learned, they haven't deeply reflected to independently verify it, and they haven't practiced it. But that's their results of their decisions and their practice. Our role isn't to go out and change everyone else and tell everybody else what the misunderstandings are. Instead, I write these books, I share these classes, I invite people to come learn. And then when people do come learn and they take the time to understand what it is that I'm sharing, then they can see for themselves that this is the truth. And then that eliminates the craving or the desire for you to rush out into the world and try to convince other people that they're misunderstandings. That's not what our role is. But instead, as a community, we're sharing resources that help other people to learn with the words of the Buddha 
if they choose, and they need to be able to choose to come learn these teachings. We don't need to actively go out and forcefully convince people that they're misunderstanding something. So this is the purpose behind the chapter. This is why it's going to help you to further understand the path to enlightenment and really illuminate what it is that's going to guide you to enlightenment. As we go in today's class, you're welcome to ask questions by putting those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. And in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask questions. I will stop every now and again and open up to any questions that you guys might have so that you can get some clarity. Because some of the things that I share, you may have participated in these things, you may have done these things, you may have people around you that are doing these things, you might have seen books or been in other classes with teachers that are talking about these things, and you might be seeking clarity. Because part of not believing me is that when you're learning, you might need to seek clarity and say, David, why is it that you teach this? Can you help me to independently verify that what you're saying is the truth? Because that's what my role is as a teacher. My role isn't to convince you of anything or prove anything to you because I already know what I share is the truth. But instead, I invite students to be able to ask questions and seek clarity and understand why it is that I'm sharing what I'm sharing. So thank you all for joining for today's class. I appreciate your dedication to learning and we just have a few more classes before this group learning program is going to be over and then we're going to move into some other classes and then eventually restart the whole program again, which I'll explain to you at a later time. But I would like to just welcome you to the class. The first thing that this chapter discusses is helps you to understand some of the reasons why there's misunderstandings before I actually go into the misunderstandings themselves. So to help you understand a little bit more about how this all came to be is let me share with you the three main types of Buddhism that you'll see in the world, or at least the three main traditions of what people are calling Buddhist teachings. So the Buddha lived in an area that today we call Northeast India and we call Nepal. 2,500 years ago, there wasn't that line between Nepal and India that it is today. Instead, there were just kingdoms around that area. So the Buddha was born in a place called Lumbini, Nepal, and then he spent most of his life in an area that we today call Northeast India. And that's the real focal point of where the Buddha lived and people in that region of the world had access to him. So they were able to learn and practice his teachings and the teachings became more and more prevalent in that area. And then after his death and even during his life, they were spreading, they were starting to spread, but it was after his death that they really spread the most. There's one particular king called King Ashoka who lived about 250 years after the life of the Buddha. And this was an individual who was into war and fighting and spreading his kingdom. And he had this great kingdom and he was really good at war and his soldiers had killed a lot of people and he had conquered a lot of land. But eventually he learned the teachings of the Buddha and he had this complete transformation and he stopped doing all of those things. And he used all his royal riches in order to spread the teachings of the Buddha. So he's the first person who's really accredited with spreading the teachings of the Buddha far and wide around the world. And this map that I'm sharing with you shows a bit about how the teachings spread, but it's not 100% accurate in the way that it's depicting it. That focal point that you see there, Northeast India and Nepal, is where the Buddha existed, and the teachings spread from there. And 
this tradition that we call Theravada Buddhism, which is primarily hosted in South and Southeast Asia, this is what we call the teachings of the elders. This is the tradition of Buddhism that's here in Thailand, in Miramar, in Laos, in Cambodia, in Sri Lanka, as well as Southern Vietnam as well. This is kind of the real focal point of Theravada Buddhism. But in reality, Theravada Buddhism has been spread all throughout the world, but this is kind of the real focal point of these teachings. The teachings that exist in Thailand, what the researchers and archeologists think and the scholars think is that it spread from the location of where the Buddha lived down to Sri Lanka. And then from Sri Lanka, it made its way into Thailand about 800 to 1200 years ago. So by the time that Buddhism came to Thailand 800 to 1200 years ago, the Buddha had already been dead for about 12 to 1300 years. So when the Buddha was sharing his teachings, there were already teachings that existed in that region of the world. It was practiced in what we call today of Hinduism. So there were these Brahmin priests who had convinced the people and the people believed that they couldn't worship, they couldn't really improve their life. They had to pay the Brahmin priest in order to get these prayers. And it was the Brahmin priest, this special class of people that could take in this money, do these prayers, and these people would get a better life. Well, the Buddha observed that this actually wasn't working and this isn't true reality. And it also bred corruption because as people came to the Brahmin priest and Today, maybe it was $5 to get a prayer. Tomorrow, it's $10. The next day, it's $20. And it's like, why? Well, because that's what they said. And the commoner, they didn't believe that they could actually pray or improve their life in any way other than going to pay this money to a Brahmin priest. And the Buddha understood that this wasn't working and this isn't how things truly work. In order to get to a better improved life, you need to cultivate wisdom and make wiser decisions in your life. That's how people get to better results, not through rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. So this tradition of Theravada Buddhism, the way that this tradition functions is they feel that it's the Pali Canon that is the original source teachings of the Buddha and that that is what's going to lead to enlightenment. So we call it the teachings of the elders because it's the oldest, most traditional form of Buddhist teachings that is based on the teachings and the words of the Buddha that existed during his lifetime. But when he started teaching, while there was a core group of enlightened beings who deeply understood the teachings, as they spread throughout the world to places like Sri Lanka and Thailand, they were already practicing different things. They had certain folk traditions and certain other things that they were practicing. Here in Thailand, they practice something called animism. What animism is, is this is the belief that inanimate objects have a spirit, like a tree has a spirit, or the water has a spirit, or the earth has a spirit. While this is very lovely to think about, and it's, it's a very beautiful thought, it's actually not true that a tree, the earth, these things, they don't have a spirit, but people were worshiping a tree as if it has a spirit or the earth, like there's a spirit. And even still here in Thailand, they have these things called spirit houses that they will put in front of houses or they'll put it in front of a business. And they believe that the spirits are coming to live in those houses and they will feed these spirit houses with water and food, thinking that they're appeasing the spirits. And by doing so, <clears throat> it creates a better life for them that these spirits don't affect them and cause impact to their life. Well, this is all a knowing of true reality. This is 
ignorance or delusion or confusion. So when Buddhism came into a place like Thailand, it was already 1200 to 1300 years after the death of the Buddha. So things had already been kind of adjusted and morphed and changed. And there was a little bit of Hinduism mixed into it. And then there were people here in Thailand who uh, were already practicing things like animism in their folk traditions. So it's not like Buddhism arrived on a Friday and there was a countrywide announcement that said, all right, on Monday, we're going to be up and running on Buddhism. Everybody clear out everything you know about your folk traditions and everything that your ancestors ever taught you. Clear all that out of your mind and we're going to be up and running on Buddhism 2.0. You know, that's how we upgrade computer systems. We don't do that with teachings that have been integrated into people's hearts and into their minds, and they've been handed down from our ancestors over a consistent long-term period of time with generational knowledge. That's not the way things happen. Instead, the people that were here in Thailand and in Sri Lanka and Myanmar and Cambodia and all these other places, they were already practicing certain teachings so that when Buddhism came in, they just integrated it into what they were already doing. So this is why you'll see a lot of misunderstandings in places like Thailand and Cambodia and Myanmar and Laos and southern Vietnam and Sri Lanka is that people have over time integrated in these Buddhist teachings with what they were already doing. And this has been contributing to the impermanence of the Buddhist teachings. And this is why we see the misunderstandings that we see in the world. And while all this was happening and all these teachings were being spread throughout the world, there was these splinters in the community where a certain group of ordained practitioners went off and created something called Mahayana Buddhism, which is a big modification to the original teachings of the Buddha. And then there was another branch that was created called Vajrayana Buddhism. And in each one of these major schools of Theravada, Mahayana, and Vajrayana, there's individual sects within them. So there's three major schools, and then there's a lot of segmentation within each one of these individual traditions. So what we've got in the world is this huge diversity of teachings that are all very, very, very different depending on what tradition you're studying, depending on what temple you're at, depending on what person you're talking to. They're going to understand the teachings very differently. And some people refer to the Theravada tradition as the lesser vehicle or Hinayana, which is a derogatory way of referring to Theravada Buddhism. Some people refer to Mahayana Buddhism as the greater vehicle and the Vajrayana Buddhism as the lightning fast vehicle. And this is the idea of how quickly can you get to enlightenment? Well, anybody who's interested in getting to enlightenment quickly, they don't understand how enlightenment works, that it's a gradual progression. It's a gradual training, gradual practice that leads to gradual progress. There's no such thing as hurry up and get to enlightenment. So by describing these different types of Buddhism, it's almost like, you know, if you're selling a product today, it's like, oh, you've got version one, you've got to have version two, and version two is so much better. And oh, you've got version two, you've got to have version three because version three is so much better. But in reality, as these different traditions of Buddhism started to spawn, they actually started getting farther and farther away from the teachings of the Buddha. That in the Theravada tradition and in the original teachings of the Buddha, you can see that he didn't teach rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. 
But by the time Mahayana Buddhism is created, there starts to be rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. And then by the time you get to Vajrayana Buddhism, there's all kinds of rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that is part of this tradition. So when you understand deeply what the words of the Buddha are and what he actually taught, and then you see what's being done in Mahayana and Vajrayana tradition, you can see that they're farther and farther away from what leads to enlightenment. And I'm not saying that they're wrong or they're bad or there's anything intentional that they're doing. Perhaps there's some temple somewhere in one of those traditions that are teaching something that does lead to enlightenment. I don't know because that form of Buddhism from what I've seen and what I've been exposed to has rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship in it. And as soon as those things get introduced, then the mind doesn't understand that those things don't lead to enlightenment. But because of this integration of Buddhism into a place like Thailand and Sri Lanka and others, even in places here in Thailand, you will see rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that are being practiced that are hindering people from actually getting to enlightenment. And when I talk about misunderstandings, that's what I'm going to be helping you to see is a lot of these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and also the way that people are thinking about these teachings are misunderstandings, and I'll help you to see more clearly what that is. But I'd like to pause here for a moment and see if you guys have any questions on the three main traditions of Buddhism and, you know, kind of how they came about and the impermanent nature of the teachings coming into the world before I move into actually sharing the misunderstandings themselves. So the way that you can ask questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Yes, sir. Uh, I have a question for you, sir. Um, what is presently practiced in uh, Nepal and and uh, northern India, where the where the uh, Buddha originally taught? So interesting enough, the area that the Buddha originally taught in is actually Hindu. They don't practice very much Buddhism. You would think that a Buddha arising in the world and being in that region of the world that those people would still be Buddhist practitioners. But the way that this works is just like with Jesus Christ, just like with the Buddha, just like with Prophet Muhammad and others, the region of the world that you're from, the people usually reject you as being a Buddha or in Jesus Christ's case, being a prophet or being a, a son of God. People typically think like, how could he be a Buddha? He's just like us. You know, there's nothing special about him. He's just like all the rest of us that have grew up in this area. It's typically people outside of the region that you were born in and you grew up in that actually honor and respect your teachings and can see the clarity and truth in them because when you are from outside the area, you're kind of immediately considered an expert. This is something that I learned when I was in computer field. When I graduated from computers and I took a job in Northern Virginia, I was like 22, 23 years old, and I really didn't know a whole lot. I just graduated from college. And this company was traveling us all around the world, all around the US, and they were charging people $350 an hour for my time to show up and actually do some work. There was nothing that I did during that period of time that I would consider worth $350 an hour. But the company that was hiring us, they viewed what I was doing as worth $350 an hour. 
Why? Because the definition of an expert is that you're from out of town, essentially, right? If you're from out of town, you're an expert. So the Buddha living in this certain region of the world, people didn't necessarily, after his death, adopt what he was sharing and consider him an expert in the teachings that lead to enlightenment. But if you look at northern India and kind of like southeastern India and South India, those are regions of India that actually more adopted the teachings of the Buddha because he was from outside that region. He was an expert. But the area right around where he lived, people didn't necessarily in a long-term nature adopt what it is that he was teaching. And this is why the teachings are actually a lot more integrated and a lot more successful in places like Sri Lanka and Thailand and Myanmar and Cambodia and Laos, southern Vietnam, even the U.S. is picking up the teachings more and more where that region that the Buddha actually lived, not so much because people didn't necessarily in a long-term nature look at him as an expert because people look around and think, oh, he's just like us. You know, how could he be a Buddha? For another example is like, say that a Buddha arose and was born in in America, in, in the United States of America. People that grew up in that area, people who are from America, they probably wouldn't necessarily consider that person to be a Buddha because he's just like us. He he grew up here, you know, he was not going to necessarily be accepted and adopted as a Buddha. Or like Jesus Christ, he wasn't necessarily accepted by the people that he grew up around. So it's the same thing that you see throughout all these traditions. And any person who potentially might arise as a Buddha or a reborn Jesus Christ, they might choose to leave the area that they actually grew up in because they actually can see the results of these past teachers and they might actually see that they can be more successful by living outside of the local area where they grew up and this is a better way to perhaps share their teachings in the world rather than to continue to exist in the area that they were actually born in. So this is a commonality that you see amongst these kind of teachers that ascend to a certain level of enlightenment or awakening that they're typically not accepted and adopted by the people who they grew up around and where they were actually born. Yes, thank you, sir. Yes, Miranda uh, has a question on Facebook, sir. Yes, thank you, sir. On Facebook, Vimut Tyrod asks, what is Zen? Where does it fall into these three? Zen is part of Mahayana Buddhism. It's a it's a segmentation or a sect of Mahayana Buddhism. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also asks, is it Theravada mainly in Sri Lanka, Burma, and Thailand, sir? Yes. So it's Sri Lanka, Myanmar or Burma, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and southern Vietnam. They are, for all intents and purposes, more likely than not practicing Theravada Buddhism. But in reality, these teachings have really spread all throughout the world. So you can find Theravada temples in the UK and Australia and Japan and Singapore and the USA and South America. They're really all over the entire world. But these are the real focal points that these population of people have learned the teachings and adopted them for a much longer period of time. So you might consider them like a hotbed of the teachings because a place like Thailand has had the Theravada teachings for 800 to 1200 years, where they've only really been in America for about 50 years. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. And then she also asks, Teacher David, 
Are you considering you are a Theravada? I have shared your books with friends and she asks, what form of Buddhism is it? Yeah, most people would probably consider what I'm sharing is Theravada Buddhism. For me, I don't necessarily identify with any particular label or form of Buddhism or anything like this because what I'm sharing are the words of the Buddha in the teachings of the Buddha. And I'm a practitioner of the teachings of the Buddha. During the lifetime of the Buddha, he wasn't Buddhist. He wasn't a Theravada Buddhist. And for me, I don't identify with being a Theravada Buddhist, but it does help people that when they ask, like, what form of Buddhism do you teach? I might share in a real easy way of, oh, it's Theravada Buddhism. It might be easier to share that way. But when students like you are studying with me more deeply, I help you to understand that this mind doesn't identify with the label of Theravada Buddhism. It also doesn't identify with the label of I am Buddhist, right? Because that's a label that then if somebody hears pleasant things about I am a Buddhist, they get pleasant thoughts. Or if they hear disagreeable things about I am a Buddhist, then their mind can get painful feelings. So by not identifying with any of these things and just realizing like I'm a practitioner of the teachings of the Buddha, that's the way that I think. And this isn't a label. This is just something that I'm doing as part of my practice. But for people to understand, it's sometimes easier to just say, yes, these teachings are from the Theravada tradition. Yes, thank you, sir. I think that you answered your follow-up question to that just now, uh, how to answer those questions in short about the book when it comes to those questions, sir. Yeah, I think it's easier just to probably tell people that, yes, this is Theravada Buddhism, or it's the original teachings of the Buddha, or it's the words of the Buddha. I don't typically use the word Theravada other than in this particular class when I'm teaching it. You know, when I'm teaching this class, I'm helping you see the distinction because it's helping you to understand why there's these misunderstandings, that there's this segmentation and this fracturing of these teachings. And the same thing happened with Christianity, right? There's Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Catholic. There's all these fracturing of the teachings. And this is because of impermanence. And you know, each individual tradition is going to say, you know, our stuff is the right stuff, right? Because why would somebody be practicing that and sharing that if they didn't think what they were sharing is the real stuff? But what's important is that a lot of times what people are sharing is based in belief. If you're interested in getting to enlightenment, you should never believe anything. And that's how you can learn that what your particular teacher or the resources that your teacher is sharing is the truth is because you don't believe what I teach. You don't believe the books that I write. You don't believe what I'm sharing with you in these classes. You learn it, you reflect on it to independently verify it, and then you practice it and see that it improves the condition of your mind. And then you know the truth. So it doesn't matter what somebody else says about what they think about the tradition of Buddhist teachings that you're practicing, you know the truth that at one time your mind was very angry and you experienced sadness and guilt and shame and fear and all these other discontent feelings. And now as you've gradually learned these teachings, 
those don't exist anymore. They've gradually diminished. And ultimately, when you get to enlightenment, then those feelings have been completely eliminated from the mind. And that's how you have the truth. And you know the truth that these are indeed the teachings of the Buddha because you've observed the changes to the condition of the mind. So every one of these traditions and every practitioner in them in these traditions will tell you that what they're doing is the truth. But the way that you determine that it's the truth is through independent verification and through practice. When you see the condition of your mind improving, that's how you know you're learning the truth because you've got the results of the mind getting closer and closer to enlightenment. Yes, thank you, sir. We do not have any questions on Facebook or on YouTube at this time, sir. Yes, sir. That seems to be all the questions uh, on the platform. All right. So let's go ahead and move on to the next thing that I have to share with you guys, which is the actual misunderstandings themselves. I'm going to share with you nine different misunderstandings, and I'll pause after each three to open up to any questions. So even though I've shared with you about these three different traditions of Theravada, Mahayana, and Vajrayana, I don't share with you all the misunderstandings of Mahayana and Vajrayana because I don't think that that's necessarily beneficial and I think it can actually be confusing. Instead, what this chapter really focuses on for the most part is the misunderstandings within the Theravada tradition. Because if you're going to navigate the Theravada tradition and go in and out of temples or meditation centers or consult with teachers and so forth, you would like to be able to identify what things are misunderstanding so that you can see the path very clearly of what leads to enlightenment. So this first misunderstanding that I'll share with you is something that in Thailand is called Guat Nam or pouring water ceremony. What the belief here is, is that when you make an offering to produce merit to a temple or to an ordained practitioner or to a teacher, they believe that when you make this offering and practicing generosity to produce merit, that you take this little urn of water and you pour it out. And as you're pouring out this water, it transfers the benefits of you accumulating merit to somebody else. And typically, they're thinking about dead relatives, that they're transferring the benefits of their merit to somebody else. Well, if somebody believes this, it's just a belief. If you understand what the practice of generosity and merit is actually accomplishing, then you realize that it's not possible for you to transfer the benefits to somebody else. So when you're practicing generosity and you're practicing to accumulate merit, the generosity that you're practicing is to help you eliminate craving, desire, attachment, because the mind has this longing and yearning. It's holding on to things really tightly. It's clinging. It's being selfish. And when you're practicing generosity of giving and sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources, this is contributing to you to help you eliminate the craving, desire, attachment. That's what the real benefit of generosity and the accumulation of merit is doing for you. You should be practicing generosity without any expectation of anything in return. However, what you understand is that there is this benefit that it's helping your mind to be trained to let go and reduce your craving, desire, attachment. And when you are practicing generosity to produce merit, which means you're making an offering to a teacher or to a temple, or somehow you're encouraging the continued sharing of Gautama Buddha's teachings through practicing generosity, this is helping other people get access to the teachings of the Buddha. 
there's no way for you to transfer the elimination of craving in your mind and this merit that you're accumulating by helping the teachings of the Buddha come into the world more readily. You can't transfer that to your dead relatives. And if you look at the teachings of the Buddha where he talks about gamma in the natural law of gamma, because practicing generosity and producing merit is a practice it's a decision that you're making in order to produce wholesome gamma. When you look at the words of the Buddha, when he talks about gamma, and this is in chapter nine of volume one, and it's also in volume six of the book series that I wrote, that entire book is dedicated to the natural law of gamma. The Buddha says that when somebody is producing gamma, either wholesome or unwholesome, you are its heirs. He says, you have gamma as your origin, you have gamma as your resort, whatever you do, wholesome or unwholesome, you are its heirs, meaning you're going to experience the results of whatever decisions you make. He never ever shares anywhere in his teachings that you can transfer your gamma in the results of your decisions to somebody else. It's not possible for you to do that. So you can think about this as like if there was somebody who was a murderer and you did all this wholesome stuff, can you transfer the results of all your wholesome things to the murderer and help them get out of jail? Because now your wholesome actions are going to benefit them. Their unwholesome actions of murdering are going to affect them because that's the choices that they made. There's no way with this little urn of water to pour it out and transfer your good deeds to somebody else. Jesus would have said, you reap what you sow, right? You reap what you sow. And the Buddha talked about the natural law of gamma, that you are the owner, the heir of your gamma, either wholesome or unwholesome. It's a wonderful thought to be thinking that, yeah, I can do something good and pour out this water and transfer it to somebody else, but it's just not possible. And as long as the mind thinks that this is what's going on, then it's going to be diluted in not understanding what generosity is for and what the practice of merit is for. So therefore, there's going to be this lack of understanding, this lack of wisdom. It's really beautiful what people do with this is they pour out this water, they take the water, they pour it into a plant. And what they believe is that the, the water goes up through the plant and then the water is kind of enjoyed by heavenly beings. Such a beautiful story. It's so warming. It's, it's so beautiful. It's just not true. The Buddha never taught that. And as long as the mind is deluded in this way or lacking this understanding and continues to practice in this way, thinking that this is what's occurring, then the mind isn't deeply understanding what the true practice of generosity in the development of merit is actually doing. And is, if you don't understand what the true practice for generosity in the accumulation of merit is doing, then you're not likely to practice it and you're not likely to actually get the results of eliminating craving, desire, attachment. That's one of the primary goals of this path is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And it's breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity that's leading you to be able to do that. So if somebody's not understanding and lacking the wisdom of what generosity is truly doing, then they're going to lack that wisdom and most likely not practice it. And if I think as a person that when I die, my relatives are going to be doing the ceremony for me to help me, 
then that means in this life, I might not take action in order to do good, wholesome things because I can do all this unwholesomeness in this life. And then when I die, my relatives are going to make up for that. This is delusion. This is confusion. This is a misunderstanding of the Buddhist teachings. But you'll see this commonly in the world. And even ordained practitioners will practice this. And if you're at a place where someone is offering you to pour this water, it's not like when you pour the water, you're immediately not going to get to enlightenment. The mind has to deeply understand that as you're pouring this water, it's not going to lead to your enlightenment. It's not going to lead to the benefit of other beings. In a situation where I've been multiple times where I used to do this, and that's how I know it's not true, and all the other teachings that I've shared so far to help you understand it's not true. But now when I'm in a situation where someone might say, oh, get the guatnam and pour the water so you can transfer your merit, I'll just politely smile or I'll say that's okay or whatever. And, you know, I don't do it because it's not wise for me to do this because I'm teaching just as much through my words as I am my actions. If I did this as a teacher, but taught people that it's unwise to do it, people would be like, hey, why are you doing it if you're teaching that it's unwise? So I choose not to do it. I don't look at it as I'm offending somebody. So if an ordained practitioner suggests for me to actually do it, then I just say, no, I'm fine. That's okay. Or I'll just why them or I'll just smile or something like that. So don't feel like just because other people are doing this that you should do these things because remember what we talked about last week about the lotus flower you need to rise above the murkiness of the world as long as you stay embroiled into the murkiness of the water in the murkiness of the world you can't rise above the murkiness and bloom like a lotus flower so in order to get to enlightenment you're going to be doing things very differently than the vast majority of the people around you while other people are going to be sad and angry and frustrated while other people are holding on and grasping tightly while other people are doing rites ritual ceremonies and worship you're going to need to choose to understand that these things don't lead to enlightenment and rise above them. It doesn't mean you can't ever worship, for example. Some people enjoy worshiping God, but just understand that that worship isn't what's changing the condition of your mind. It's wisdom through independent verification of the teachings and making wise decisions that is leading to the improvement of your life. And you can see this, for example, if you go to a place where there's worship, People can go in, worship for an hour or two, and then go outside and they're angry and frustrated and irritated because the worship hasn't changed their wisdom. It hasn't given them wisdom of how to now function in the world through better decisions. So you'll see this guatnam and you'll see this thing that's called namon if you go into a lot of temples. What this is, is they'll take some water out of the faucet, they'll put it into a bowl and they'll typically wrap a string around it, they'll burn a candle, and as the ordained practitioners are chanting, this wax is dripping into the water, and now they think they have this kind of blessed water, or this sacred water, or this holy water. And then they will dip this kind of, it looks like the end of a broom, but it's not. They'll dip this into the water and then they'll sprinkle it on people and people think if they get this water sprinkled on them something really wonderful just happened for them and now they've got this water that is sprinkled on them but this is once again a right ritual ceremony and worship that 
getting water sprinkled on you is no different than you going out into the rain and getting a little sprinkle of water or going into the shower and getting some sprinkled water on you. There's no difference. It's not the sprinkling of the water that's going to lead to your improved life and your improved decisions and getting to enlightenment. It's cultivating wisdom and making wiser decisions in your life through training your mind that's going to lead to improvement in your life, not this sprinkling of water. These things in this third one are all coming from Hindu practices. You'll see this has been kind of integrated in other folk traditions and things like this that have been integrated into the Buddhist teachings. This third one in Thai we call Sai Sin. This is where if you go and talk with an ordained practitioner, they will sometimes tie a rope around your wrist and the people think that this is beneficial for them. And you'll even see a practice here in Thailand where they'll tie ropes around trees, they will tie ropes around your car, they will sprinkle water on your car, they will bless your car, they will do all these different things that they think that they're blessing you or blessing the car, and this is somehow going to keep you safer and keep you protected. Well, if you've gone and had a really wonderful talk with an ordained practitioner and you learned some wisdom that is going to improve your life, that's what's going to help you in your life is the gaining of wisdom. And now you can make wiser decisions in your life. If this string being tied around your wrist and you look down at it for the next three or four days and it reminds you of the wisdom and that's going to help you, it's the wisdom that's helping you, not the string. The string isn't actually helping you, but people believe and they think that tying the string around their wrist, somehow they now got this sacred thread from this ordained practitioner and somehow this is going to protect you. Well, it's not the blessing of the car. It's not the string that's keeping you safe. It's your decisions to practice things like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. These are the things that are protecting the mind because now you're making wiser decisions about how you interact in the world. This string is just a piece of string. It's not going to protect you from somebody attacking you, for example. It's your decisions about how you choose to interact in the world. If you had a string wrapped around your wrist and you were harsh and aggressive with people in your community, you can think that you're going to probably get attacked by somebody. But if you practice right speech and you're speaking at the right time, what you say is true, you speak gentle, you speak beneficially, you speak with a mind of loving kindness, then you know that you're not causing any harm to any people around you. And then people aren't going to be interested in attacking you. It's not the string that's accomplishing that for you. It's the wisdom that you cultivate about the Eightfold Path and the way that you implement that wisdom in your life that's leading to better results. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have. Remember, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Yes, sir. Chris Rice has a hand up in Zoom. Hi, teacher David. I accidentally uh, let the teaching pass the initial part where I had a question. In the beginning of this chapter, the book says that there are varying degrees of enlightenment which shine through at various, various stages while defilements of the minds will, will be present. Does that mean that a fully enlightened being will still have defilements in their mind or does that only refer to non-fully enlightened beings? 
that only refers to non-enlightened beings. So remember, there's the four jhanas, which are the preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment. And then there's four stages of enlightenment. It's only once the mind's in the fourth stage of enlightenment that it's actually enlightened. Everything previous to that, the mind still has defilement. It still has pollution. So somebody could be in the first stage of enlightenment, for example, and still have conceit, still have ego. They're having a significantly diminished amount of discontentedness, but there's still ego in there, for example. And this is why during the lifetime of the Buddha, not everybody was enlightened by the time he died. So there were still people who were in various stages of getting to enlightenment. They weren't fully enlightened yet. So there is still ego in some people's minds who are kind of in the process of getting to enlightenment. So people fractured and went off and tried to create their own thing. Even during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were individuals who were advocating to the Buddha to change his teachings. And they were like, no, you know, we're allowed to have sex. We can have sex and still be enlightened. There's no reason why we can't have sex and still be enlightened. You need to change your teachings, you know, things like this. And the Buddha knew what the teachings were. And he knew that as long as there's a craving for sex, the mind isn't going to get to enlightenment. But when or if you actually eliminate that is up to you. That's part of the process. And people can get to that first and second stage of enlightenment, for example, and still have sexual contact. But this is just an example of how these teachings have really been fractured in some communities because people are in various stages of awakening. And there's that ego there thinking that they're wiser and smarter than the Buddha. And now they start changing and modifying his teachings. And this is how we've come to a situation where there's a lot of misunderstanding in the world. Thank you, Teacher David. I, I understand that that helps a lot. Can I ask a second question that covers something that you talked about a few minutes ago? Sure, you're welcome to ask whatever questions you like. Okay, the, the second question involves the word wholesome. You, you mentioned the word wholesome um, maybe five, ten minutes ago, something like that. But I looked up the definition of the word wholesome, and it indicated that it means that wholesomeness involves something that leads to good health and well-being but in the teachings you provide does, does wholesomeness does that really encompass um if you do wholesome decisions how, uh i kind of kind of lost my train of thought but 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 i think i'm going back to the to the teachings about there being three different type of people in the world and a third type of person they they know how to gain wealth and also increase their wealth and then the second one is that they they also um know the difference between wholesomeness and non-wholesomeness but then i'm wondering how, how can how can a person really experience wholesome results if 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 if, if someone can experience wholesomeness without being enlightened, but but uh, basically, I guess I'm asking, what's the difference between wholesomeness and enlightenment? Maybe that's a better way to word it. I kind of got lost. Okay, so enlightenment is a mental state where the mind has been completely purified and it no longer experiences any discontent feelings, right? So no anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, all these other discontent feelings are eliminated. It's a mental state. And in order to get there, 
somebody would need to cultivate wisdom and through cultivating wisdom, not believing the teachings, but independently verifying them and practicing them, you then have the wisdom of how to train the mind. And as you're making wiser and wiser decisions in your life, then there's this wholesome outcomes that you start observing that your personal and professional relationships really blossom. You start observing that the condition of your mind is improving and all these different things based on cultivation of wisdom. So it's wisdom that leads to wholesome outcomes. When we make unwise decisions because we lack the understanding of these natural laws of existence, when we make those unwise decisions not understanding the natural laws, then they're going to lead to unwholesome results, right? And a lot of people will use the word good and bad, but I tend to use wholesome and unwholesome because I think it better represents what it is that we're going for, that we're not really saying something's good or bad, but we're looking for wholesome results based on wise decisions. But you can't make those wise decisions if you haven't cultivated wisdom. And that's why belief doesn't lead to wholesome results necessarily, because with belief, you don't know what's true or false. But when you independently verify teachings, then you have wisdom, you know what's true, and now you can make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results. The struggle that the unenlightened mind is experiencing is it lacks wisdom. It has this ignorance or unknowing of true reality, so it makes unwise decisions that leads to unwholesome results. Okay, yeah, that, that, that helps a lot. But I guess I'm still wondering, in the example of the third person in the world, compared to the attentive practitioner who could see um, the Four Noble Truths, how, how, can, the third, how can the third person that, that is able to see um, how, to get, how to gain wealth and also how to increase wealth, and then the second, the second part, also understanding the difference between what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, how can they actually see what is wholesome and unwholesome without actually knowing knowing the four noble truths? Because I thought that that's part of, I thought that you can't achieve complete wholesome results without enlightenment and understanding the four noble truths. That's, I, I gotta, I'm getting a little confused there. Yeah, this isn't directly related to our class today, but let me try to help you a little bit. And if this doesn't help, then let's take it offline and have a follow-up conversation so we can stay focused on today's topic is that the mind isn't either unenlightened and enlightened it's not like flipping a switch it's not like everything's horrible in your life and then the next second everything's wonderful because you've gotten to enlightenment instead it's a gradual progress it's this gradual progression as you're gradually learning you're gradually practicing and you gradually experience progress so there might be certain decisions in your life that you're making that are really wise and that that area of your life you're experiencing lots of wholesome results but there are certain areas in the unenlightened state that you're not wise about and you're making unwise decisions and it's producing calamity in your life. So in an unenlightened mind, there's going to be some parts of your life that are wholesome and that are you're experiencing great benefits in. And there's going to be other parts that you really struggle and you have difficulties with. So you might be having a really great relationship with your life partner, but you're struggling raising your children, for example. Or you might be having a lot of trouble at work, but you're able to have a great relationship with your children, right? So you can have different parts of your life that you have wisdom about and you conduct that area really well in another area that you're really struggling. 
But what you're doing as part of this path to enlightenment is you're cultivating wisdom about all parts of these natural laws of existence so that now you can clear out all these struggles and difficulties gradually over a long-term period and ultimately get to a point where you fully have cultivated wisdom and the mind has gradually come into enlightenment where now everything that you're doing the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And that's a gradual progression that you're going to see this declining of unwise decisions and unwholesome results and this gradual increase of wisdom and wholesome results. As you increase your wisdom and wise decision-making, the wholesome results will be coming more and more vibrant and more and more flourishing in your life. Okay. Thank you, Teacher David. Uh, I'll let you get back on track. Um, thank you for answering my questions. I appreciate it. You're welcome. If there's anything else, let's follow up privately so I can help you clarify that, Chris. You're welcome to schedule an appointment or send me a private message, ask a question in Facebook or something like that. Thank you uh, for your questions. Uh, Chrissy has a question in Facebook. Hi, uh, yes. Mahmoud Tyron asks, where or how do you put your mind when you have to be in the situation that they are doing pouring water or pray. When they pray, it is hard to not hear it and you have negative self-talk. And then he also asks you, or I guess it's a statement, you can't escape from it. Right, okay. So this is part of getting to enlightenment is to not be affected by what's going on around you. Because getting to enlightenment isn't about controlling the people around you to do things in a certain way. Instead, an enlightened being can go into a temple environment, for example, and know that this Guatnam pouring water ceremony is not the teachings of the Buddha. And even though everyone else is participating in that, they can just sit there quietly and peacefully and smile and just you know, choose to not participate and it doesn't affect their mind because what other people choose to do in their life practice is up to them and they're going to experience the results of that. But what you choose to do is going to produce results in your life. So what you would need to get to is get to a point where you can exist in an environment where people are doing things that you maybe disagree with but it doesn't affect your mind regardless. So you aren't going to ever be in a situation where you agree with 100% of what's going on. So for example, the temple that I teach at, I have a large classroom on the first floor of a building and I share the teachings that are the words of the Buddha. At the same time, there's monks upstairs above me that are teaching fortune telling and doing psychic readings and you know they've got all kinds of statues and sprinkling water on each other and everything. That's them. That's what they choose to do. It doesn't affect me. The people that choose to go up there, they go up there. When I come into the temple and I see people are waiting to go see those monks, I why them? I show respect. I smile to them. I say hello. If any of them ever ask me questions about what I do or what I'm doing, I will share it with them. But your contentedness shouldn't be contingent on what other people are doing. Your peacefulness, your joyfulness shouldn't be contingent on what other people are doing. That's the attachment. That's the craving. If somebody's craving for other people to do things a certain way, then they're only going to be content and joyful when those people do things your way. 
But when you eliminate the craving, when you eliminate the attachment, and you don't have a desire for other people to do things the way you do it, then you can sit in an environment where people are doing these things and be completely content and joyful because you know that that's their decision and your contentedness and your joy and your peacefulness isn't contingent on what other people choose to do. Okay, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. There is also um, what appears to be another statement from Jacqueline Mills. Um, she says, wholesome equals, I think, equals con- conductive to or promoting moral well-being. I would agree with that, yep. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Miranda has a question. Yes, thank you, sir. About this Guatnam, the first one, the pouring water ceremony, I guess this is something that... I, I've looked at before and the mind keeps coming back to how this could have become misunderstood because Gautama Buddha did teach that beings are the owners and the heirs of their karma. Is there a teaching somewhere that you know of that maybe I haven't come across yet where this could have become misunderstood? Yes. So the reason why it's being misunderstood is because people aren't using the words of the Buddha to study. As people are sharing the oral tradition and somewhere along the line, somebody was like, hey, grab that little thing and pour out some water and let's transfer our merit. And it just kind of gradually continued to happen. Right. But there is in volume 12 of this book series a listing of some of these misunderstandings and where they're from. This team of people that did the research for these books they traced exact misunderstandings to individual monks, maybe from 500 years ago or 300 years ago, who actually introduced something that completely misled the community. So you'll see, I think, what Nam is in there, and Namon is in there as well, of where the misunderstanding comes from. But the core misunderstanding is that the ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, the thing that is affecting all unenlightened beings, and that people aren't studying with the words of the Buddha and the clarity of his teachings. That's the challenge. And that's why the work that we're doing in part of this community is so important, that we understand what are the true teachings and that we practice the true teachings. And then when people are interested in learning, then they can come in and learn and they can see the truth for themselves. And what other people choose to do, up to them. They can choose to do whatever they'd like to do. But as long as we know what the truth is and we practice the truth, we see the condition of our mind improving, and we're not judging other people for what they choose to do, and we're not having conceits or arrogance about what we're choosing to do, this is the way of practice, is that we just learn, we reflect, we practice, we see the improvement to the condition of their mind. Wow, we know these are the real teachings because... There's beings that are getting closer and closer to enlightenment every day in our community. And then as people choose to come in to learn, we just open arms, invite them in and welcome them in and help them to learn. And then others can experience the same thing. And in this way, over the course of our life and multiple generations, we will restore the teachings of the Buddha back into the world. And then more and more people will understand them and actually be practicing them and getting the results of the enlightened mind. That's the ultimate determining factor of whether what you're practicing is the truth or not. Is the mind experiencing a diminishing of discontentedness and getting to enlightenment? And this is part of the misunderstandings, too, is that 
the vast majority of the world don't understand what enlightenment is and what is experienced as enlightenment. And there's just so many misunderstandings. And that's what this whole book series and all the work that I'm doing for the rest of my life is really working towards accomplishing of laying down what is enlightenment and how to get to it. This is just a small chapter to really highlight some of the key misunderstandings that you'll see other people practicing. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Thank you, sir. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Miranda? That's okay. Um, there is also a question, this Nama, the blessed water sprinkling ceremony, this was actually experienced. I went to a temple and I donated a bag of rice. And after donating the bag of rice, this monk took, it did look like the end of a broom into water and sprinkled like this. What, what would be the wisest response to this? I, I didn't feel that me saying anything, it wouldn't have been the right time mm -hmm. or the right place to say anything to this person about what they were doing, but what would be pretty much the, the wisest response to something like that, sir? Sure. Remember that our goal in life is not to push the teachings onto people or force other people or teach other people. Our teachings are only available for those people who choose to learn from us, right? People who choose to ask questions. So if I was in that situation, I would probably just you know, okay, they sprinkled water on me, no big deal. You know, I already know that it's not doing anything other than making this body wet. I might choose, depending on how much time I have and who this person is and how open they are to understanding, I might start asking them questions in order to help them understand, but I'm not obligated to do that and I'm not gonna force that on them. So like I've been in temples before where I've seen monks sprinkle water on other people and I will go up to them politely and ask them questions. And they've actually admitted to me that they know that this is not part of the Buddhist teachings. And then I ask them, I say, well, why do you do it? And they say, because the people ask for it. Well, if I was ordained and I was had people come to me and ask for this water to be sprinkled on them, I would take the time to explain to that person that this isn't part of the Buddhist teachings and there's no benefit in doing it. And I would educate them and gave them wisdom so that they can improve their practice. But there's a lot more work involved in that, in helping the person to release this belief from their mind. And it takes a lot more effort on the part of the teacher. So oftentimes what I see is that even though ordained practitioners know that these aren't the teachings of the Buddha, they still do it anyway because it's the easy way. It's almost like complacency has set in and they just do it anyway. And they're actually getting paid to do these things. You know, the things that the Brahmin did during the lifetime of the Buddha where they accepted money for rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, it's the ordained practitioners that have now become the Brahmin. It's really ironic that this has happened because the Buddha taught about this his whole life and then now the very people that he created the community for, the ordained practitioners, have become the exact people that he was teaching that these things are not leading to wholesome results. So there's a large number of people who are relying on income for these rites, rituals, and ceremonies and worship. So a lot of these ordained practitioners aren't willing to let go of these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship and the household practitioners aren't willing to let it go either. So if you interject yourself into that and trying to convince them of the truth, 
they're probably, because of their craving, just going to get angry and they're going to have wrong view and they're going to attribute their anger to you and think that you're the bad person and then you get pushed away with aversion because of their craving. So in a lot of situations, it's sometimes best to just be quiet and not try to teach that person unless they ask you questions. If you spend time around me enough and you see how I do things, you'll see that I have a way of asking people questions in order to kind of guide them to wisdom by just asking them questions. So if I went into a temple, I have ways of asking questions skillfully to help them realize that what they're doing is not part of the teachings of the Buddha. And then they don't get angry with me because they're just answering my questions rather than me actively teaching them. But there's a way to actually help people through asking questions. But this is a much higher level of practice that you learn through essentially being around your teacher and seeing how they do it. Because each individual situation is different. And the only way to really learn it is through experience and observing somebody who does this skillfully. But you shouldn't feel the responsibility or obligation to do this. Because more likely than not, if you're not doing it well the other person's just going to get angry and they're going to attribute their anger to you. And they're going to think that you're the one who caused their anger because if they're unknowing of true reality about ceremonies and rites and rituals, then they're most likely going to be unknowing about craving is causing their anger as well. Yes. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Thank you, sir. That's my question. Good morning, uh, and good morning, everybody. Um, teacher, I have a question. If you have a uh, right view about this ceremony, so it's basically you understand it's not going to make uh, help you enlightenment, enlightenment, and also it's not going to do anything for you, but a tradition. And when you come to temple, you have to be polite. Basically, you can participate in this ceremony. Yeah, if you choose to participate in these uh, rites, ritual ceremonies, and worship. Like I mentioned, it's not going to mean like immediately you can't get to enlightenment. Like in Miranda's case where she happened to go make some offerings and they whipped out the water and started sprinkling it on her. It's not like the Wicked Witch of the West and the Wizard of Oz where it's like, oh, I'm melting. I can't get to enlightenment now because he sprinkled water on me. That's not how it works. Instead, it's about your mind and understanding like, okay, this person just sprinkled water on me. All right. That that felt nice and refreshing. Wow. Thank you. Right. So. It's more about how your mind understands with wisdom what's going on versus how you choose to participate or not participate. So if somebody's participating in something like Guatnam and or the Namon or the Saisen and thinking and believing that these things are going to benefit them, then their mind is still confused and it still has ignorance or a lack of wisdom, this unknowing of true reality. But if these things are going on around you or somebody happens to sprinkle you with water, as long as your mind understands, that's all that matters. So, for example, I haven't been to a church in a very long time, but, you know, I enjoyed going to a church and singing and doing the things that they do at a church. But I also know that that isn't what's going to lead to improvement in the mind. So when you go into a Buddhist environment, if they're doing some of these things, whether you choose to participate in it or not is up to you. For me, I choose not to participate because I need to set an example of what are the true teachings. And if I'm doing one thing and teaching something else, people get very confused. 
But in situations where somebody happens to sprinkle some water on me, I might just smile and that's it. No, in my situation, when I go to uh, Theravadan temple, I have a particular one priest, and uh, he always invite me to do sign seven ceremony. And, you know, kind of, I feel if I refuse, it's going to be uh, not polite. So, and I know it's not going to do anything for me, it's not going to help me, it's not going to let me get enlightenment so i choose to participate to be just polite to this person this is what i was explaining about rising above the murkiness of the water in the world that if we just continue to do something because we don't want to make somebody else to feel disrespected this is because of your craving this is because of your attachment Rather, what it takes more time, effort, and energy to do, but it's more beneficial, is to share with that monk, you know, I appreciate, sir, that you're interested in being so kind to offer me this string. However, I'm choosing to no longer do that because I realize that that's not actually what leads to enlightenment. And that kind of discussion can lead to better wisdom for that person, and it can lead to improved wisdom for you to learn how to say no in a very polite, kind, friendly, respectful way. Because if somebody came to your house and laid out some cocaine and said, hey, Slav, let's snort some cocaine, you'd find a way to say, "Uh, that's probably not for me. And you wouldn't feel like you were being disrespectful to that person. Now, that's an extreme, right? Like cocaine. But this is something that is less extreme. But the mind is doing the same thing. What you're doing is you're saying, yeah, I'll snort the cocaine with you because I don't want to disrespect you. But here, what you're saying is I'll accept the string because I don't want to disrespect you. I don't want you to feel disrespected. But if they feel disrespected, that's because of their own craving, desire, attachment. So there's a way for you to skillfully and wisely talk to this person and help them understand. And that's part of what an enlightened being is able to do. They won't feel shy. They won't feel hindered. They will have the wisdom to be able to use right speech and speak to this person in a way that is very kind, very friendly, very polite, very respectful and be able to resolve the situation where I'm not interested in going forward to snort cocaine. And I understand that you're doing that. If you would like to do that, you're going to need to do it somewhere else other than my house. But I understand that that's what you'd like to do. And I wish you well, you know, so there's ways to say, I understand that you offer these strings and that's very thoughtful and very respectful of you. And I really appreciate your thoughtfulness, but I'm going to choose not to accept that. Is that okay for you? Are you understanding that this is something that I'm choosing not to participate in? And if they get angry at you because of that, that's because of their own craving. You didn't cause that. That's just a personal choice that you're making. And if this person isn't comfortable with that impermanence, that not everybody's going to want a string from them, then that's their own struggle, their own craving, their own attachment. So we all need to get to the point where you're comfortable rising above the murkiness of the world. The Buddha talks about he was born in the world, but he's not stained by the world. He's unsoiled by the world. This is what you need to get to is where other people may be doing things that are unwise, but you're not going to allow that to soil 
or stain your life practice in the way that you choose to practice. Because just conforming to what other people are doing, this is allowing other people's decisions to stain you or soil you. The Buddha says he's unstained and unsoiled by the world. Thank you, sir. Uh, Chrissy has a question. There's a question on Facebook from Vaimut Tyrod. It says, can I just practice mindfulness, notice my mind and cut off and let it go? I believe it's in reference to his pre- the previous question. Yeah. So this is what you would do, right? If you're in a situation where you experience discontentedness arising, Well, there's the four foundations of mindfulness. There's the whole eightfold path that you're practicing and mindfulness is awareness of mind. And those four foundations of mindfulness are the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind and mental objects that where you observe the bodily sensations are arising because the mind's about to get angry or frustrated because of what's going on around you. That's where you cut that off and let it go. That's how you train the mind to let these things go. In situations where you observe that discontentedness is arising, you apply the practice of the Eightfold Path to train the mind to let go of that craving. And that's how you ultimately get to the point where people can do whatever they choose to do around you, but you don't allow it to affect you. So this person, using Slav's example, this person can offer you a string but you realize that, okay, I can politely and respectfully decline. And if I experience any discontentedness because of that, that's my discontentedness. And I can cut that off and let it go. And eventually you get to the point where you're very comfortable using right intention, right speech, and right action, knowing that you're not causing any harm by just choosing to decline a string from an ordained practitioner. You haven't caused any harm in that situation. Um, Same thing when you're in an environment where people are doing Namun or Guatnam. You haven't caused any harm by just sitting there. They're not causing you any harm by choosing to do Guatnam or Namun. And where you see discontentedness arising, you cut that off and let it go. And that's what you do throughout all aspects of your life. Thank you. Yes, sir. All right. So let's go ahead and move on to the next three then. The number four here that's in the book is I shared about ordained practitioners because there's some ordained practitioners that study with me, but there's also certain situations where you might interact with ordained practitioners. These are sometimes called bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. Bhikkhus are the male ordained practitioners and bhikkhunis are the female ordained practitioners. One of the things you might observe from being around an ordained practitioner is that if you why them or you show respect to them, they may not choose to why you back and show respect back to you. This is because what they're typically taught is that they're above us, is that they're higher than household practitioners. This isn't true. This isn't the way that the Buddha taught. If you look at the words of the Buddha, he taught that the ordained life is the lowest form of livelihood. Because remember, he was a member of the royal family. He was a prince and he actually stepped out of that into homelessness put on rags and walked down the street and accepted food as offerings to humble his mind so that he could eliminate the ego and the conceit. But unfortunately, over the last several generations, 
people have gotten to the point where they elevate ordained practitioners thinking that they're so high above household practitioners. And this breeds conceit and arrogance and pride and ego in the mind to the point where they're actually taught as part of their ordination that if a household practitioner wise you, you don't why them back. And they're taught that because they practice more precepts, this is the reason why they do that. The reason why I share this with you is that your practice should be based on what you know is wise and what you know is wholesome. Your practice shouldn't be contingent on what other people do. So if you why ordain practitioners and they don't why you back, you shouldn't expect that they will why you back so that when they don't why you back, your mind's not discontent because of it. So if you why an ordained practitioner and they choose to not why you back, you just smile and you just keep on going about your day. I interact with ordained practitioners occasionally, particularly at the temple that I teach at, and I will typically why them. They absolutely don't why back, and I just smile, and I keep whying them every time that I see them because I do this for my practice, that I'm ensuring that my mind is polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. I'm ensuring that my practice is based on humbleness, whether somebody else chooses to respect me or not is up to them. They're not disrespecting me. They're just choosing not to why based on their lack of wisdom of what they've been taught in their education and what they've been taught. And I've got the words of the Buddha here to be able to help ordain practitioners and all of us to see that the Buddha absolutely didn't teach for this to occur, that he taught that we should respect each other and that we shouldn't allow this gain honor and praise, this propping up of other people propping us up to pollute our mind and dilute our mind. These are some of the words of the Buddha to help ordain practitioners and all of us to understand that it's all about being humble and viewing all people as equal. His words here are, gain honor and praise are an obstacle even for an otter hunt. Monks, Gain honor and praise, I say, are an obstacle even for a monk who is an otter hunt, one with taints destroyed. So what the Buddha is saying here is an otter hunt, somebody who is enlightened. It's an obstacle, this gain honor and praise, this propping up of people. And then when this was said, the venerable Ananda, who's one of his closest students, asked the master teacher Gotama, why, venerable sir, are gain, honor, and praise an obstacle, even for a monk with taints destroyed? This is a logical question because Ananda's like, hold on a second. If somebody's enlightened, why would gain, honor, and praise be an obstacle for them? They're already enlightened. They shouldn't have any obstacles. Their life should be seamless. They shouldn't have conceits anymore. This gain, honor, and praise shouldn't be an obstacle for them. So Ananda asked the Buddha, you know, why is gain honor and praise an obstacle for an enlightened being, essentially. The Buddha follows that by saying, I do not say, Ananda, that gain honor and praise are an obstacle to his unshakable liberation of mind. So the Buddha is saying, gain honor and praise aren't an obstacle to his enlightenment and his mind is unshakable, that when he's enlightened, his mind is unshakable. It's not an obstacle for him once he's enlightened. But I say... They are an obstacle to his attainment of those peaceful dwellings in this very life, which are achieved by one who resides diligent, dedicated, and determined. So dreadful, Ananda, are gain, honor, and praise, so bitter, vile, obstructive 
to his achieving the unsurpassed security from bondage, right? So what he's saying is once you're enlightened, gain, honor, and praise aren't an obstacle. But to attain enlightenment, gain, honor, and praise are an obstacle. And this is the reason why I put this in the book. This is the reason why I share it. Not to point out that I think that the ordained practitioners, in my opinion, are not practicing properly. Instead, it's to help those ordained practitioners to see that if your mind is unenlightened and you're going around thinking that you're above household practitioners and you're looking down on them, and when they show respect and gratitude to you, that you don't respect them back, this is hindering you from your attainment of enlightenment because of the conceit in your mind. And I also share this because as a household practitioner, if you show respect to an ordained practitioner and they don't show respect back to you, you shouldn't allow that to affect your mind either. So that's why it's important for me to share this. Because the Buddha says here, he says, therefore, Ananda, you should train yourselves thus. We will abandon the arisen gain, honor, and praise, and we will not let the arisen gain, honor, and praise persist obsessing our minds. Thus should you train yourself. So when you're in life, even you're not an ordained practitioner, and someone props you up and thinking you're so great, you shouldn't allow that to obsess your mind. So if you work in a certain work environment, and people are praising you up, down, left, and right, thinking you're so great, don't allow that to obsess your mind because arrogance and pride and conceit can set in. Instead, remain humble, right? Maybe thank them for their kind words, but just remain humble. And that's what the Buddha is actually teaching here because gain, honor, and praise can be an obstacle for your attainment of enlightenment. So where you hear gain, honor, and praise, if you observe any pleasant feelings arising, cut that off and let it go. And here's another teaching from the Buddha along the same line that I share for ordained practitioners and for all of you to realize that it's humbleness that he's teaching. This one is titled, This Spiritual Life is Not Lived for the Sake of Deceiving People. Monks, this spiritual life is not lived for the sake of deceiving people and persuading them, nor for the benefit of gain, honor, and praise, nor for the benefit of winning in debates, nor with the thought, let the people know me thus, but rather this spiritual life is lived for the sake of restraint, abandoning, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination. So what he's saying here is going down this path to get to enlightenment isn't for you to gain and gain wealth and be honored and be praised. That's not why you're should be progressing on this path to enlightenment because you want everybody to look at you in such a great way and that you're so high and above other people. Instead, you should choose to go down this path to enlightenment as a way of restraining the mind, abandoning the unwholesome qualities, gaining this freedom from strong feelings, eliminating discontentedness. That's the real purpose behind going down this path to enlightenment, not getting this gain, honor, and praise. And let the people know me thus. Look how wise I am. Look how smart I am. Look how much I know. This is conceit, right? So the Buddha is explaining the purpose of his teachings is to restrain the mind, abandon unwholesomeness, get this freedom from the strong feelings and eliminate the discontentedness in the mind. That's what he's teaching. And for somebody who's deeply learning and practicing his teachings through his own words, they won't allow the mind 
to look at themselves as above others, but instead is being equal. And this is a misunderstanding of Gautama Buddha's teachings where monks are thinking that they are above other people and they aren't respecting household practitioners. In my view, if I'm ordained, I'm going to deeply respect household practitioners because they're the ones who are allowing me to be ordained. Because by them sharing food and water and clothing and shelter and medical care and financial support, these are the people that are allowing me to live this ordained life. And I should have nothing but gratitude and appreciation and respect for these people. This is the mutual support. And out of that respect, I'm going to deeply learn the teachings and I'm going to share those teachings with these people to help them in their life rather than being disrespectful and not showing gratitude when somebody shows me gratitude. So if you notice the way that I practice is I why everybody, I show respect to everybody, even children. My own son, I will why him sometimes. My own son, I will call him sir, you know, thank you, sir. I appreciate that, sir. And this is a way of me showing respect and gratitude to him and also teaching him how to interact in the world. So when we allow our mind to get obsessed with this gain, honor, and praise, and this conceit and arrogance and pride to set in, we're actually hindering ourselves from getting to enlightenment. It's important for your practice to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to everybody and see everybody as equal. Even though other people might not think that way or conduct themselves that way, you'll need to conduct yourself that way in order for you to experience enlightenment. This fifth one is about chanting and mantras. During the lifetime of the Buddha, he used chanting as a way to help people remember his teachings because it was an oral tradition. So twice a month, every two weeks, he would gather his students together and they would recite his discourses word for word for word as part of chanting. That's how you ensure that your students learn an oral tradition is put it into chants and have them recite it throughout the year. So throughout the year, they would recite this what, 26 times they would recite his discourses in the teachings that he shared. And that's how chanting came to be. But nowadays, because we chant in a language that is no longer existing, like the Pali language, people don't really understand the Pali language so much. So it's taken on this mystical, magical thing where people think there's some kind of mysticism or magic that's happening. And some people think of it as prayer. There's some communities that tell you if you repeat these mantras, 10 times a day for the next 10 years, you'll get an extra long life or it'll eliminate your unwholesome gamma or you'll get to enlightenment if you chant these chants and these mantras regularly. But this is a misunderstanding of what's actually keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. What's keeping it in the unenlightened state is a lack of wisdom, is the ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. And there's no mantra that's going to help you to do that. And the way that you can test this for yourself is, is that if you go to a community and they say, if you chant this chant regularly, you will get an extra long life. Okay, I hear what they're saying. So that means that if I look around in their community, there should be people that are 150 years old, 200 years old, 300 years old in this community. Because if they're chanting these chants and they're getting an extra long life, there should be a lot of really elderly people here that are 150, 300 years old. Do you see that? If you don't see that, then you know that it's not true. 
but see the people are believing this, but yet they're not testing it. They're not independently verifying it to discover the truth. So if you're testing things that people are telling you, then you can independently come to the truth. If people say, if you chant these chants, you'll immediately get to enlightenment or you'll get to enlightenment within a certain number of time, then there should be a lots of enlightened people in their community. There's no kind of secret chants that are going to produce anything beneficial. When I teach chanting, I share with you why I chant and what results are benefiting the mind. But it's all about mindfulness. It's about concentration. It's about helping you get more results out of your meditation practice. It's not about eliminating gamma because you can't eliminate gamma through chanting alone. You need to make wise decisions in your life. So you could do chanting for 24 hours a day or 23 hours a day. If you go outside and you speak harsh with people, your life isn't going to be peaceful because people are going to be speaking harsh with you all the time. So it doesn't matter how much chanting you do. If you're not gaining wisdom of how to practice in the world, then you're going to experience unwholesome results because of the lack of wisdom. But you'll see people that will have these different chants and they will tell you to chant them because they're going to produce some beneficial result, which isn't the truth. You can't get an extra long life from chanting. You can't get to enlightenment through chanting. You can't eliminate unwholesome gamma through chanting. If that was the case, the Buddha would have had a step on the Eightfold Path that says right chanting, and he would have made it part of the Eightfold Path. But it's not part of the Eightfold Path because chanting doesn't lead to enlightenment. It's possible to chant to cultivate certain qualities of mind, but it's not required in order to get to enlightenment. That's why it's not part of the Eightfold Path. The sixth one is about statues of the Buddha. There's plenty of people in the world that have statues of the Buddha, and there's no harm in having a statue of the Buddha. It's beautiful artwork. It's amazing what artists can do and how they can create these statues. But when they were created, they were created about two or three hundred years after the death of the Buddha because as the people who were practicing Buddhist teachings started coming in contact with people in Greece who were making statues of their gods, the Buddhist people were thinking, you know, who do we have to make a statue of? Oh, the Buddha. Let's make statue of him. But two or three hundred years after his death, those people didn't actually live during the lifetime of the Buddha, so they had no idea what he looked like. They just cast these statues based on what they were thinking. And that's why a lot of these statues, they don't even look human. Or you'll see statues in Thailand that'll look very Thai. You'll see Chinese statues that'll look very Chinese. You'll see Japanese statues that look very Japanese. And these are artists that are trying to depict the Buddha to look very much like their culture because people want the Buddha to be from Thailand or from Japan or from China, even though it's widely known that he's from the area of Northeast India and Nepal, when artists oftentimes cast these statues, they're trying to cast them in the likeness of their own culture. And this is just because they don't understand what he necessarily looked like. And then the problem gets even more challenging is that now that these statues are created, you get all these little ceremonies and worship where people will try to feed the statues. They will give them food offerings or water offerings. They will bow down to these statues. They will pray to these statues, thinking that the spirit of the Buddha is in that statue. And if they pray to this statue and they bow to this statue, that something beneficial is going to happen for their life. But the Buddha never taught any of this stuff 
but this is what's happening in some parts of the world. And again, it's not that these people are bad or they're wrong or, or that we should judge them in any way or another, but this is just a misunderstanding that it's important that you understand if you go into any of these environments and people are teaching you to bow to these statues and that the spirit of the Buddha is in these statues and this is what you need to do in order to get to enlightenment, this is a misunderstanding of his teaching. This isn't true. And some people go into Buddhist temples and they will bow to statues. And in their mind, they're thinking that I'm showing gratitude and I'm showing appreciation and I'm showing respect to the Buddha. And I'm also training my mind to be humble. And that's why I'm bowing. And this can actually produce beneficial results for you in your practice because those are qualities of mind that you need in order to get to enlightenment is appreciation, gratitude, and respect. And you need to practice being humble. But another person can come in and bow to you. It looks like they're doing exactly the same thing. But the other person is thinking that the spirit of the Buddha is in there and they're going to pray to the statue and get some beneficial result. So it's not about what other people choose to do. What other people choose to do is up to them. It's about your practice and making sure that you understand the truth, that there's nothing about a statue or bowing to a statue that is going to necessarily produce enlightenment for you if you practice it in a way that you think that the spirit of the Buddha is there and that you need to pray to this statue or worship this statue or feed this statue or do some kind of ceremony with this statue. None of that stuff is going to lead to your enlightenment because it's wisdom that is needs to be cultivated to get to enlightenment. Rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship isn't going to do that for you. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have on any of these three. Yes, sir. Christy has a question. Yes, there's a question on Facebook from Vaimut Tarad. It is, who is Bikunis? Do we have Bikunis in Thailand? Sure. So a Biku is a male ordained practitioner and a Bikuni is a female ordained practitioner. And they do exist in Thailand. They're bringing this back. There's a little over 300 of them now. When Buddhism came from Sri Lanka to Thailand, it was only male ordained practitioners. So there was never a female community of ordained practitioners that was established in Thailand. So all these years, 800 to 1200 years, it's just been male ordained practitioners. But the females need an ordained path as well. And during the lifetime of the Buddha, females were ordained. So in Sri Lanka, there's females. And in other parts of the world, there's female ordained practitioners. In Thailand, as recently as 20 years ago, there wasn't any female ordained practitioners. And now there's females that are ordaining in Sri Lanka and coming back to Thailand and they're revitalizing the female ordained path in Thailand, which is very helpful for society and it's very helpful for the women as well. So Thailand does have this. And then as far as I know, there's at least one temple down in Bangkok that is dedicated to this. And there's probably going to be more and more as time goes on and more and more women choose to go down this path. Okay, and then it also um, is asked, is Bikunis is not nun? Am I correct? People are translating Bikunis as a nun. That's what they call it. So they will say monk and nun. During the lifetime of the Buddha, it was Bikus and Bikunis. Now what I say is male ordained practitioner and female ordained practitioner because monk and nun 
is really kind of being brought in from the Christian culture, which there's nothing wrong with the Christian culture, but it just gets confusing when people are using terms from one tradition and kind of bringing those over in, into another tradition. So I think it's more helpful to say male and female ordained practitioners because that makes it very clear what this is. And it makes it very clear that these people are equal. It's not that the males are above the females or the females are above the male. They're all equal. And during the lifetime of the Buddha, he referred to them as bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. Now, male and female ordained practitioners is probably the best way to refer to them. But you will hear other people refer to them as monks and nuns. Okay, thank you. And then I have a question also um, about lying. Is it disrespectful um, to not lie and be on this path? Like when you lie to me and I wave back, is that disrespectful? I don't take that as disrespect. I don't think of it as disrespect. Um, remember, when I why to somebody, I'm whying for my practice. I'm saying I appreciate you, I have gratitude for you, I respect you, I'm being polite to you. And whatever you choose to do back for your practice is your practice. And when you smile and wave at me, that's you being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful back. That's how you express your politeness and your respect. So. I don't look at it as being disrespectful because I'm not craving for you or anyone else to do things a certain way. If you chose to why me, then I understand what that is. But I also understand what a smile and a wave is, too. That's politeness and respect as well. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes, Server Brenda has a question. Yes, thank you, sir. Um, is there anything wrong? unwise about having statues or posters of Gautama Buddha, for instance, in the bedroom that, I, that I'm sleeping in, I do have a small Buddha statue and then I have uh, posters that um, you gave me at the retreat, one on one wall and one on the door. And they're used um, more as reminders of the teachings and the one on the door is the one that has all of those separate teachings on it and when i'm going out the door i can stop and look at all of them or one of them in particular and that helps to bring those teachings into the mind as i'm heading out the door to work or out into the world in general is there anything unwise about that sir what you're doing is what I typically teach is that if someone has a statue or images of the Buddha or things like this, use them as reminders to help you remember right speech and right action and things like that, because that's what's really going to improve the condition of your mind. If you were like offering flowers and incense and bowing to them and feeding them and things like this, this is where the mind is diluted and that's unwise and it's going to lead to complications in your practice, but just having them around as reminders, that's where I think they can be really helpful. And that's why I use this picture of the Buddha where he looks like a human being, because a lot of these statues make him look really glorified. And that's not what he taught. He didn't teach to glorify himself. He taught that he's just a human being like everyone else and that you can get to enlightenment just like he did. So by having these reminders around us that he was a human being, I think is very helpful for the mind. And it can remind us that we can practice these teachings. So if you have a for example, a picture of the Buddha in your living room and you're on the phone and you feel this anger and this 
you know, this desire to argue with somebody on the phone and you happen to look over at the picture of the Buddha and you're like, nope, let me cut that off. All right, that served a really good purpose for you, didn't it? So that's how I tend to share that if you're going to have these images of the Buddha, that you can use them for those purposes. Maybe to remind you to meditate and remind you to be more kind and polite when you go out the door in the morning. Things like this can be really beneficial, but it's not the image of the Buddha that's doing that for you. It's your decision to be kind, polite, and friendly and respectful. It's your decision to be practicing right speech and things like this. That's what's leading to the benefits, not the picture itself. Yes, thank you, sir. And to go a bit off topic, um, the mala beads, the meditation beads, I have a few of them now because a couple of people have sent those to me. I tend to wear those for a reminder to meditate, but then also out in the world and at work. I've been used to those as a reminder of the teachings. Also, when at work, if I start to feel frustrated, I can touch the beads and go, okay, yes, now let's cut that off and let that go. But then at first I did notice there was a bit of an attachment where if I forgot to put them on, be driving down the road to work and notice that I wasn't wearing them, like, oh, and it, I have to cut that off and let that go. So then there was a practice of not wearing them. Is that... I mean, I guess I'm answering my own question. That was probably the most wise thing to do when noticed that there was an attachment to them to not wear them for a while until that attachment was gone, where now if I'm driving and notice they're not there, it's, oh, well, okay, and just carry on about my business, sir. Yeah, that's the challenge with all these different things is that the mind can get attached to them and hold on to them. And then when you don't have them, the mind's shaken up. So where you see that the mind is doing that, then that's what you do is you strip down your practice and eliminate them for a period of time. But it, this is where you can understand that it's not having the mala beads or it's not having the statues that is wrong, so to speak, right? In quotes, it's not wrong to have these things because there's a way of practice. It's more about how your mind relates to this. So it's not wrong to have an image of the Buddha hanging on your wall. It's just that you need to understand that this image of the Buddha hanging on the wall isn't by itself going to produce wisdom for you and isn't going to lead to better outcomes in your life. But if you cultivate wisdom and understanding the teachings, and then when you see the picture, it reminds you to practice those, that's what's actually leading to the improvement. So where you see your mind is attached to these things, it's actually good to strip it out of your life and not use it for a period of time. But then if you choose to bring it back in, then you know your mind's not attached to it and you can do that just fine. So I, that's why I don't think about right and wrong. It's about how you use it, right? It's all about how you use it. It's about how you utilize it in order to get to the ultimate goal, which the ultimate goal is wisdom and being able to practice on a regular, consistent basis. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Christy has a question. Hi, yes. There's more questions on Facebook. Um, Vimotai Rod asks, what should I put my mind to if I choose to pay respect to the statue of the Buddha? If I was you, what I would be thinking is cultivating appreciation, gratitude, and respect for the Buddha, and that you're choosing to be humble. 
this is the way that you can practice. If you would like to have an image or a statue and some people like to kind of bow to these statues, you should be cultivating appreciation, gratitude, and respect for the Buddha, having confidence in him that he was enlightened, having confidence in his teachings, having confidence in the community of practitioners, and practicing humbleness where you realize that you would just like to be down to earth and humble, not putting yourself above the Buddha or below the Buddha, but everybody is just equal. That's a good way of practice if you're going to choose to do that. Okay. And then also, I believe this next one is not a question, but a statement um, where it's continued. I sometimes, why the Buddha teaching books, your books to show respect and grateful? Exactly. See, that's a practice that you're choosing to do in order to cultivate appreciation and gratitude and respect. And there's no harm in that, right? But if you thought by wanting the books, the wisdom's going to jump off the page and go into your mind and immediately help you get to enlightenment, that would be a misunderstanding or delusion. But you don't have that. So this is where it's not about the action of what you're doing necessarily in a lot of these situations. It's about how the mind understands it and how the mind relates to it. Okay. Um, then also Jacqueline Mills asks, are those informative yellow and black posters available on Amazon or would we get them printed ourselves? I haven't figured out a way to put them on Amazon. You can print them yourself, download it and print it. Or if you'd like me to send some from Thailand for you, I can print them very inexpensively here and ship them to you. You can do it that way too, if you like. I think that's all the questions on Facebook. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's no more questions at this time. All right, so let's go to the last three that I have to share with you guys, which is number seven, which is Gautama Buddha as a God avatar or Lord. There are some people who think about the Buddha as a God, an avatar or a Lord. But if you understand what the Buddha taught during his lifetime, he never said that he was a God, an avatar or a Lord. Even though there's people today that look at him that way and think of him that way, He didn't think of himself that way. And what I'm sharing as a misunderstanding is that it's unwise and it's also harmful and even dangerous for your mind and the mind of others if you think of him this way. So let's just take this one of being a Lord. If you look at the definition of what a Lord is, this is someone or something having power, authority, or influence, a master or a ruler. Or this is somebody who acts in a superior or domineering manner towards someone. These are exactly the opposite of what the Buddha taught and what he actually did. He didn't teach that he has power or authority or he's a ruler over you. He didn't teach that he was superior or domineering over you. He taught just the opposite of that. So if we use this word Lord attributed to Buddha, Lord Buddha, then we're attributing these qualities to him. And then people lack the ability to truly understand the humbleness of what he practiced. And then additionally, these teachings really need to be shared worldwide. And there's a lot of people that have been taught that Jesus Christ is the only Lord and Savior and to not kind of worship any other Lord other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ shared that during his lifetime. But if we call Lord Buddha 
you know, Gautama Buddha, if we call Gautama Buddha Lord Buddha, then that means there's over a billion people who are identifying as Christian who would never, ever be interested in learning these teachings in order to benefit their life because they're not going to be interested in understanding Lord Buddha because they already have a Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. So this makes it more difficult for the Buddhist teachings to come into the world and help people when we use the word Lord Buddha associated with the Buddha. And he never called himself a Lord. But the challenge is is that people might have grown up in a Christian environment and now they are in the Buddhist world and now they happen to be translating the text and they're actually putting Lord Buddha in front of the Buddha. Or for some people who grew up in India, sometimes it's very common for people to call him Lord Buddha. But if you understand that these qualities of a Lord are being attributed to the Buddha, and that makes it more difficult for you to then understand the true qualities of mind that he practiced, so therefore it's hard for you to get to enlightenment, and you're making it more difficult for other people to warm up to his teachings, when they already have Lord Jesus Christ and they're not interested in understanding the teachings of any other Lord. We don't worship the Buddha. We don't worship him at all. So if we start using Lord Buddha, it gets very confusing for people's minds and these teachings aren't going to be able to permeate in the world as easily and readily if we continue to use this word Lord. Same thing The Buddha wasn't a god. A god isn't born through the womb of a woman. If a being is born through the womb of a woman, they're a human being, and we call them a human being because they came through the womb of a woman. If a being is born through the womb of a female dog, we call it a dog. If it's born through the womb of a female cat, we call it a cat because it's a cat. This individual that we call Gautama Buddha or Teacher Gautama or Master Teacher Gautama or Aesthetic Gautama, He was born through the womb of a woman because he's a human being. He's not a god. Gods aren't born through the womb of a woman. So if we refer to him as a god, then we're not understanding that he was a human being. He was a teacher. People end up elevating him really highly, thinking that only he can get to enlightenment and that he needs to be worshipped. And none of these things are going to lead to actual wisdom in your enlightenment and the ability of other people to understand his teachings and get to enlightenment. Same thing with something like blessings. Some people will say the Buddha is the blessed one, or they'll say, may the Buddha bless you, or may the triple gem bless you, or may the triple jewel bless you. This is a misunderstanding. The Buddha never did blessings during his life. What a blessing is, if you look at the definition of a blessing, is it's God's favor and protection. A prayer asking for God's favor and protection. The Buddha never taught this as part of his life, but once again, because of the international community now coming together and people learn about Christianity and Hindu teachings and other teachings, and maybe in those traditions, they're using the word blessing, then they're attributing that to the Buddha. And they're saying, oh, may the triple gem bless you, which is the Buddha, the teachings and the community. It's not possible for a human being to bless another human being. Think about how much ego and how much conceit would have to be in somebody's mind to think that I can come over to you and I can put my hand on your shoulder or on your head or on your back and I can do something that's going to bless you. 
I can't do that as a human being. No human being can bless you. If we think of blessing as God's favor and protection and you feel that God exists, then it's God that does those things, not us. You know, we aren't going to lay our hands on somebody and bless them and protect them. The way that people get protection is through their decisions. When you make wise decisions, you're going to experience wholesome results. So it's your wisdom and your cultivation of wisdom that's going to protect you. Not me laying my hands on you or somebody else laying their hands on you and praying over you. That's not what actually protects you. It's your wisdom and your decisions that does that. So as long as we keep associating words like blessings to what Gautama Buddha taught, people get very confused about, well, what's the real role here? Is I'm supposed to worship the Buddha and ask for his blessings because he's a God and he's a Lord? Or what did the Buddha really teach? Well, what the Buddha really taught is to learn, to reflect and practice in order to cultivate wisdom. And it's through our wise decisions that help us to come to improve results. Now, if you've done these things in the past, or if you currently think this way now, if you have craving to call the Buddha Lord Buddha, or if you have a craving or desire for blessings to be exhibited or demonstrated by another person, you might get a little bit discontent hearing me say these things. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you're wrong. It doesn't mean you've done anything unwholesome. It's just that your mind needs to understand that these things aren't what leads to wisdom, which leads to enlightenment. Now, even though I can't put my hands on you and bless you, if you reached out and gave me a hug and I hugged you, you probably would feel more warm and more comforted and you would probably feel more secure and you would probably feel more affection. Yeah, we can do those things. There's nothing wrong with doing these things in the world. But the mind needs to understand that we can't give somebody protection by just laying our hands on them or saying, may the Buddha bless you, because the Buddha doesn't bless people. He lived during his lifetime. He shared teachings to help you get to a better way of life, to enlightenment, and he's dead, and he's no longer ever coming back ever again. He can't answer your prayers. He can't bless you. It's not possible for that to occur. But people have the belief that this is occurring because that's what they've been taught through an oral tradition, or that might be what they say. So if you understand this, when somebody tells you, may the Buddha bless you, you just need to understand that that's not how you get to enlightenment. The Buddha isn't blessing you. You won't hear me say, may the Buddha bless you, or may the triple gem bless you. I've never actually said that to anybody at any time in my life, because that's just not the way that any of these teachings work. And then the last one is that some people in some traditions and some sects, they teach that when you get to enlightenment, you have a reached Buddhahood, or they teach that you have Buddha nature, that if you get to enlightenment, you will be a Buddha because you have Buddha nature. This is a misunderstanding of what a Buddha is. A Buddha meets three primary criteria. The first one is a Buddha has independently gotten to enlightenment by themselves without the help of any teachers. They've attained enlightenment. They've eliminated the 10 fetters. Their mind is completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing any discontentedness. That's the first criteria, that they get to enlightenment by themselves. 
The second one is they're going to dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their independently discovered teachings, and countless people are going to get to enlightenment during their lifetime. And then the third one is that they've preserved the teachings in such a way that upon their death, countless more people are going to get to enlightenment after their death. These are the three criteria, getting to enlightenment by themselves, dedicate the rest of their life to share their teachings, and countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime, and then they preserve their teachings in such a way that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their death. This is very rare for a Buddha to arise in the world. The last one that the world is currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. The Buddha himself talks about how rare it is for a Tathagata, or a Buddha, a perfectly enlightened one, to arise in the world. And I'm going to share with you his words so that you can see this yourself, that he said this. But if we refer to everyone as a Buddha, or everyone as Buddhahood, or everyone as Buddha nature, this is the ego once again trying to put themselves up on the same level as the Buddha. The Buddha is going to do something amazing more than what other people have the ability to do get to enlightenment by themselves, help countless people get to enlightenment, dedicating their life to sharing the teachings, giving up all worldly pursuits, and then preserve their teachings for others long into the future to be able to get to enlightenment. This is an extensive amount of work that a Buddha is going to do during their lifetime to be able to do these things and be considered a Buddha. If we say that everyone's a Buddha, not everyone's going to be able to do those three things. And this is almost disrespectful to the man that we appreciate, we respect, and that we love for all the things that he did during his lifetime. And now that we can benefit from those things now. So it's important to understand that you can get to enlightenment and you will experience enlightenment, but you won't be a Buddha. You don't have Buddhahood. You don't have Buddha nature. This is just a misunderstanding of what a Buddha is. So a Tathagata is what the Buddha referred to himself as during his lifetime. Most often people refer to him as aesthetic Gautama or monk Gautama or master teacher Gautama. He referred to himself as Tathagata. This is one who discovers the truth or one who speaks the truth or one who shares the truth. That's what a Tathagata is. And he referred to himself this way for many different reasons. But you can see here in the next teaching that he shares that it's very rare for a Tathagata to arise in the world. If everybody was a Buddha, if everybody was perfectly enlightened, he would have said that. He would have called everybody a Buddha. But he didn't do that anywhere in his teachings. Instead, he talked about how the arising of a Buddha is very rare in the world. And he referred to himself as a Tathagata because he didn't go around claiming that he was a Buddha all the time because that would have been arrogance or conceit. He needed to teach people what a Buddha is so that they would know what a Buddha is. But nowadays, a Buddha arising today isn't going to walk around and declare that they are a Buddha. Instead, they're just going to share their teachings and help people get to enlightenment and then leave their teachings in such a condition that more people can get to enlightenment after their death. So here in this teaching, I won't read the whole thing. You can see it in the book. It's in this chapter where the very first thing he says, the appearance of a Tathagata, an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, is rare in the world. 
Well, if all of us are Buddhas, if every single person's a Buddha, he wouldn't have said that a perfectly enlightened one is rare in the world. So here you can see that while people might say that you're a Buddha or you have Buddhahood or you have Buddha nature, it's just because they're not studying the words of the Buddha and understanding deeply what it is that he actually taught. And when you understand what he taught and you practice it that way, then you can get to wisdom and you can more readily make your way to enlightenment. As long as the mind stays in confusion or delusion or misunderstanding or this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality, then you can't see this clear path to enlightenment and you can't make your way to enlightenment because the mind is deluded. So if somebody was claiming that they have Buddhahood or Buddha nature, then this is essentially their mind being deluded, having conceit, putting themselves up above others. Again, we're not judging that person. We're not looking down on them. But if you've been taught that way, it's important that you let that go and realize that you can get to enlightenment as the fourth stage of enlightenment. But you wouldn't be a Buddha because you're not going to meet the three criteria of what it takes to be a Buddha. So this is everything that I had to share with you guys today. I'll just open up to any questions that you guys have on anything that I just shared. Yes, sir. Chrissy, do you have a question? Yes, thank you, Teacher David. Um, there's still much confusion in the mind when it comes to blessings and prayer. Um, and it's my understanding that a Buddha can't answer prayer, mm -hmm. but that God can. And it doesn't mean that he will because he gave us free will to create our own karma, our gamma. Um, but am I understanding correctly that God can answer our prayer? God can do anything and everything that he would like to do. He's the all-powerful and all-knowing being. But the thing is, is that he's not attached to us. And he's not going to change things in our life that are going to benefit us. So if somebody's praying for a bigger house, he's not going to give us a bigger house. Or if somebody's praying to get into a new college, he's not going to do that for you. Or if someone's praying to have this miracle performed that you can be healthy and not have surgery, for example. That's not what God does. That's what people have been led to believe that he does. But this is like treating God like a genie in a bottle in that he's going to give us these wishes and grant these wishes for us. But this isn't what he does. Instead, he does a lot of other things, which I share as part of chapter 18, which we can talk about if you'd like, Chrissy. But he's not going to answer your prayers. In fact, from my experience, when we start asking for things like, I want this, I want that, I want this, we're craving and he knows that and he's surely not going to do it, right? Because he knows that the problem isn't that we don't have more money. The problem is that our mind wants more money, right? And we need to gain wisdom in order to learn how to make more income. By him just giving us more money, for example, it doesn't actually solve the problem because the real problem is the craving for money, not the fact that we don't have it. So in the Christian area, which teaches a lot about God, there's an enormous amount of misunderstandings in that tradition. And this is one of them around prayer and blessings, thinking that God is going to grant wishes for us when he doesn't actually do that. I understand. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. 
Yes, sir. Chris Wright has a question in Zoom. Hi, teacher David. The word lowly, I looked it up and it means, you know, low rank or, or something of that nature. And the word art, it involves using one's imagination. So can you explain why the word, why the phrase or term lowly arts was chosen? I am specifically interested in why the word art was used instead of something such as profession or practice or skill or something like that. Chris, let's talk about that another time since it's not related to this class. That's from Saturday's class. If you would like to post that in the Facebook group, I think that might be a good place or we can talk about it privately or in a private discussion. But I think if you put it in the Facebook group, that might be the best place to address it or next Saturday and next Saturday's class since that's the class where we're discussing those things. Oh. Okay, I, I might have I might have got confused in the in the chapters I was reading. I thought that was part of chapter twenty four. Chapter twenty four is in the volume one. So on Sunday and Wednesday, we're studying volume one, and we're going chapter by chapter. This is called the group learning program. On Saturday, Saturday we're learning the words of the Buddha through volumes two through 13, which is the additional part of the book series. And we're in volume 12 now on the Saturday Pali Canon in English study group, which is titled Lowly Arts. So on Saturday, it's going through the volumes two through 13, chapters by chapter. On Sunday and Wednesday, we're going through volume one. This is like the foundational program in order to get people established with a strong foundation of the teachings of the Buddha. Okay, um, thank you. This is my first time coming on Zoom. I'm, I'm very happy to be a part of this, these group online classes. Thank you for helping me, Teacher David. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm pleased to see you here. It's wonderful that you now can have this level of interaction to gain insight and learn. Yes, so don't think there's any more questions for today. Thank you. All right. So as you see, there's you know, various misunderstandings in the world related to Gautama Buddha's teachings. And some of these things, as you're hearing them, it can arise some painful feelings, right? If you have craving, desire, attachment to any particular thing like Guatnam or Namun or the Sai Sin or that you thought you were a Buddha or you thought that the Buddha blesses you or you thought that God blesses you and answers prayers and things like this, if you thought this way for any period of time and there's a certain craving or desire or an attachment to these things and then you hear me share that this isn't the actual truth it might arise some painful feelings in your mind but it's not because of what i'm saying that's doing that it's the craving desire attachment that's doing that so you need to train the mind to let these things go realizing that these aren't what leads to enlightenment and the more that you understand these things and you see the truth in them, then you can actually liberate the mind from that discontentedness associated with holding on to these things. And that's one of the problems when the mind starts to think this way is that it can hold on to these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and these other things that I was talking about today, thinking that this is the way of practice. So, you know, some ordained practitioners, when I talk to them about Guatnam and Natmon, you know, it's kind of painful for them to hear somebody say like, yeah, the Buddha didn't teach this. Or, you know, when I talk with monks about wine and I ask them questions around this, it's kind of painful for them. And this is why it's wise to only share teachings with people who are asking for teachings. Because when we try to interject ourselves 
into people's lives and tell them what they should and shouldn't be doing, and we try to tell them what the teachings are or they're not, that's your own craving and that's your own conceit that's doing that. So instead, we just share these teachings, we know what leads to enlightenment, and then we invite people to come learn. And as they choose to learn, they're choosing to understand. And remember that right intention Right intention has those three aspects. One of the aspects of right intention is the intention of renunciation. The intention of renunciation is the willingness to let go, the willingness to uh, let go of things that are no longer true. Let go of your false beliefs and your misperceptions and your false opinions. These are things that are causing the mind to be in the unenlightened state. The reason why the mind is in the unenlightened state is because it lacks wisdom and it's holding on to certain beliefs and false beliefs. So as long as the mind's holding on to these things, it will continue to hinder itself from getting to enlightenment. So by practicing the intention of renunciation and willingness to let go, this is what's going to help you get closer and closer to enlightenment. So you can learn these things that I share today and in this book, and then you can independently verify what I'm sharing with you is the truth through some of the means that I've shared. And if you're having trouble to independently verify it, then you can ask me questions and I can help you to see how to independently verify that these things aren't the truth. So thank you all for joining for today's class. I appreciate all your questions. Thank you to Chrissy for choosing to be a moderator and help us out with that. That's wonderful to have another person to contribute to moderation. And I would like to invite you guys to join for next Sunday's class, which is going to be on the frequently asked questions sections that are in the back of the book. There's 11 questions there that are frequently asked that I'm going to share with you guidance on those. And then this Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation. And then, of course, on Saturdays, we do the Pali Canon and English study group. We just moved into volume 12. We're studying chapters 11 through chapters 20 this week. So you're welcome to join on Saturday for that class. So I'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.